welcome to the Wise Women and Waste podcast series with me, Claudia Amos, Technical Director for Circularity and Resource Efficiency, and Debbie Hitchen, Director of Sustainable Production and Consumption at Anthesis. If you joined us for our previous episodes, you'll know that we are co-hosting a short series of podcasts that uses informal conversation to explore the trends and opportunities in our sector through the lens of women. We are inviting inspiring women in the waste and circularity industry to discuss our passion for the work that we do and provide some industry insights and knowledge along the way. Today, we are excited to be joined by Gwen Frost. Gwen is Head of Innovation and Sustainability at Bristol Waste, an award-winning waste collection company. Welcome, Gwen. Can you start telling us a bit more about yourself and how you came to be in the sector, please? Yes, sure. Thank you for having me. So yes, I started back in 1999, which makes me feel quite old now, to be honest. So I started working as a technical support for an environmental monitoring equipment supplier. So that was kind of more general environmental, but you know, it sat with my interest for the environment. And for no real reason, I kind of had a weird passion for waste. So that's where it led, basically. So then I got my first job in local authority in the 2000s, and I was lucky to find somebody there who sort of trusted me to do some waste things. And that's where I got my first experience of rerouting a local authority and really getting stuck into kind of the union negotiations, the confrontation, the public consultation discussions, and all that kind of thing about really driving forward recycling rates and reducing waste, which is a weird one because that was back in the early 2000s and in reality we're still doing that now so good a question have we actually moved forward but I believe we have and that's where I started and then since then I've done an eclectic mix of consultancy and local authority which has then eventually found me in Bristol Waste. I love the fact you describe your passion for waste as weird I think Claudia and I and I'm hoping some of the people that have been listening to this podcast for the last couple of years would strongly disagree that it's weird there's a, a huge wealth of opportunity I think think in this sector and and you've started to touch on that you know that eclectic mix as you've talked about of local authority and consulting support and public and private sector tensions and and opportunities I think are really really exciting so hopefully we can get into a bit more of that with you as we go through the discussion but for those people who don't know Bristol Waste or who don't know much perhaps about the public-private partnerships like Bristol Waste represents can you tell us a little bit more about the company and explain perhaps a bit about that partnership and the services that you provide to the authority? Yes, sure. So Bristol Waste is a relatively new idea. So we're a tackle, basically, which means we're an arm's length company to the council, although the council is our main and only shareholder. So we're slightly different to what is normally the case. You either contract out or you either have it in-house and we're sort of in between. And that brings its advantages and its hurdles to work through. So we operate the refuse recycling as well as the street cleansing and the household reuse and recycling centres across the city. So we do the whole shooting match for Bristol, basically. And our focus is very much on reducing general waste, increasing recycling and changing our residents' behaviour. And then the benefit of being a tackle is that whatever surplus we make, we can put that directly back into the city and the city council. So we reinvest directly from the surplus that we make. I read something on your website, which was some, some amazing statistics. So it said something like you make 17 million 
Ireland's scheduled collections every year operate 180 vehicles, collect over 160,000 tonnes of waste and recycling a year, of which I think it was about 75,000 tonnes were composted or recycled, and clean 800 miles of streets and footpaths. So, I mean, that's a pretty big remit, isn't it? And am I right in thinking that amongst all of that, you collect both from households, so from curbside collections, from from residents, but also from business wastes uh, or business properties? And that when you collect that material, it's curbside sorted by the start point in that supply chain, and you operate some sort of sorting processes. Is that right? Yes. So, we collect all of our household waste directly at curbside, and we do a curbside sort as do many of the Southwest authorities. So yes, we will separate all the material streams at the curbside from a number of boxes that our residents present to us. So which means that we basically get a really good quality material because whatever we can't reprocess, we will leave it with the resident and then that education piece occurs there. That is really interesting. And I think actually waste has become a bit more glamorous in the last couple of years with the increased awareness of sustainability, but also net zero and the discussion about carbon reduction. So it would be really nice to understand and maybe make the links to see what are the council plans for net zero and climate emergency impact and how does Bristol Waste fit into that and specifically your team and your ambitions? Yes, I don't know if you know, but anyway, Bristol has a net zero target by 2030 which is quite challenging, basically, in many areas. And they were their first city to declare a climate emergency. And since then, we've declared a ecological emergency. And within all of that infrastructure is one organisation, and that has one city targets, and that leads on the 2030 uh, targets. So I sit on the Environmental Sustainability Board for that, and it's us who published and declared the emergencies. So I have kind of two hats on in that respect. So I sit on the one city board and the ambition that Bristol is to be net zero by 2030. And I also sit on obviously BWC. And within Bristol Waste, you know, we have to achieve those targets. And we have hugely ambitious waste reduction targets by 2025. So we have a 65% recycling rate, we need to reduce our per household residual waste by now just over 25 to 30% by 2025. And we need to reduce the amount of food waste that we see in our residual waste bin down to 10%. So as you appreciate within the waste industry, those are massively challenging targets, the 65% recycling rate for starters within a core city, where 25% of our households are flats. It's just massively hard. So that's what we're going through at the moment. We're trying to resolve how we get there and how we work with the city to get there because ultimately there are some difficult decisions to be made. You know, We don't really know what they all are at the moment, but we need to work through them as a city. And then within that, my team delivers a lot of those changes and thought processes and directions really of how we can get there. So for my team, it's a brilliant Time. We're loving it because the challenges are huge. It's kind of, you know, why we go to work every day is because we're trying to make day- changes and we're trying to develop improvements. So actually, to be given massive challenges is brilliant to work your way through. Slightly more daunting to think, right, well, how are we going to convince our citizens as residents to deliver this change? So it's kind of twofold. Absolutely. And what do you think are the biggest risks and barriers to achieve those recycling rates? And maybe you can give some examples of how you're working with residents. I'm one of the residents, so I'm really happy to listen to that. (laughs) What I need to do more 
Yes, I think we've been talking about recycling and which boxes to put it in since the 90s, really. None of that is new. The direct link to climate emergency is new. Well, no, it's not a new link, but it's a new association that us as the public see it. But I mean, we've had some amazing campaigns. We've done the Waste Nothing, which is working with specific households in terms of reducing consumption and then seeing practically within family working life how close to net to zero waste can you get? And we've had some amazing results there. And what's interesting is that's without changing any infrastructure for them. You know, it's not changing any collections. We don't collect any magic materials from them that we don't anywhere else. So it's just working with the infrastructure we've got. And they've been hitting 75% recycling rate and they've been reducing their general waste significantly as well. They've been producing, I think, 70% less than the average Bristol household. So it's doable where we are but we need to get everybody involved they're the engaged residents that we have and we need to get everybody involved and it's getting everybody involved and that's the difficult bit as we know in the industry it's getting the unengaged engaged and that is the eternal challenge but if we can get more and people involved and obviously that pot is smaller and then it makes that work easier i mean what's amazing is that the reduction is has such a big impact so really looking at what you actually produce on a day-to-day basis and then maybe as a second step what is recyclable compostable going to ad and what is residual and again have a shift in what type of waste you produce what is a resource that are used again and has another life cycle and what is a more a pure final waste to a certain degree yeah i love that i think it's really interesting how people's awareness has actually grown and changed recently. Uh, I'm not a Bristol resident. I live in a London borough, but I was recently talking to a neighbour in the street when we were putting our recycling out and she was proudly telling me that because of the bring facilities that are provided by the local retailer now for flexible and other plastic packaging, her weekly residual bin waste has gone down to something sort of the roughly the size of the, the food caddy because she can put her food in the food caddy. She's got a, a garden waste composting collection. She's taking stuff to bring sites and I think that probably well I moved in here 17 years ago and when we first started I think maybe a handful of people two or three people in the street even put their green bin out for recycling collection so there obviously has been a bit of a change but I think it's people like you Gwen who with your team and your innovative strategies have had to come up with the methods that will engage us as consumers there's been a bit that's probably prompted by Blue Planet and Greta and some of the other you know big media campaigns that have raised awareness but I think it's the solutions bit because we'll only as residents do what's easy and convenient for us and then um, I wanted to touch on some of the things that you've won awards for, Gwen, because in Bristol Waste, you've had, in fact, the, most of the times I saw you before the pandemic were at some <laughs> sort of awards ceremony where you were accepting on behalf of your team uh, an award for innovation or for good practice. So it'd be great to hear a little bit more about some of those projects. Yes, they were very sparkly meetups, weren't they? They um, were nice. It was lovely. I yeah. missed them. <laughs> No, I mean, I've been really lucky, basically. We've got an amazing creative team and I've got an amazing deliverable team. So actually, yes, it's not quite you've become blasé about winning awards, but it is a pleasure to work on such brilliant campaigns, basically. And I suppose what kicked it off was Slim My Waste back in 2018. And it was by far the biggest campaign. Well, certainly Bristol Waste had delivered at that 
point because we were quite new as an organisation, but certainly one of the biggest campaigns Bristol had seen for a long time. And it was quite in your face. We were quite blatant about it. You know, there was tape around the residual waste bins asking people not to put food in there. There were stickers on the top going no food and there was leaflets through the door with smiley faces on that you decorated your food waste caddy. So whichever way you turned, there was a touch point basically and a nudge to ask people to recycle their food. You know, food waste wasn't a new collection at the time. It's been in Bristol for donkey's years basically. So this was really a reminder for people to put their food in the right place. And it touched people in so many ways. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. Some people ran out in their pants and their slippers to say that no, there was no way that they put food waste in their black waste bin, even though there were maggots around the edge and all that kind of thing. So you're like, well, that's technically not true, but we won't discuss that in your pants. And some people loved it. And, you know, we did get some thanks of going thank you for this campaign it's really made a difference in our street it's increased people's presentations and since then so since 2018 you know we're collecting 40% more food than we did so it's made a difference and and Bristol Waste Company has made a commitment for every two years that we deliver another food waste campaign so back in 2020 which seems an age ago but at the beginning of this time that we're in now we ran stop bin digestion so obviously you can tell there's a pun in most of what we do but yes so 2020 is a time for another one basically and we still have the same problem you know we're doing fantastically well collecting food waste but we have to get to 10% due to the increases in our residual waste our residual waste has gone up so that makes it look as if our food waste has gone down to 20% in our residual waste but we've still got similar kilos as we used to have on a weekly basis so we've still got masses to do but we're beginning to identify the pockets where you know we have low participation and that's I think where we'll begin to focus much more now. I think that's really interesting and it's encouraging that your reductions where you've got that engaged community that you talked about just now are so significant. I mean, it does show that it's it's possible. Although, granted, you know, where you've got transient populations, maybe with your student population or where you've got multi-occupancy in flats and it's more difficult for the logistics of that collection maybe to work, then I can see where you might still have pockets of challenges. But throughout this series, I've always said I'm the optimist. I'm the person that believes that if you can prove that it will work with a sample population of good practice, then there's hope that it can expand. One of the things Claudia and I have been exploring, though, in this conversation over the last couple of years is the impact that the pandemic and the changes that have come with that in working uh, or ways of working, working from home, schooling from home, even at different times. We've been looking at how that's had an impact on the waste arisings and maybe also on the behaviours and awareness around waste and materials within the household. And I wondered whether you could kind of put any trends or patterns or share any thoughts with us about whether you've seen the pandemic impact on your waste and recycling rates? Yes, there's no denying we've seen pandemic impacts on our waste and recycling. So as a general principle, our waste has gone up, as has our recycling, but not proportionally as well as our waste. So back in the beginning, we kind of used to joke, it's like Christmas every day, but obviously we've had a couple of Christmases involved as well. So yes, I mean, the tonnages are immense. They have gone up. So I think as a snapshot, first six months of 21, we saw our household waste increase by about six and a half percent and our recycling has decreased by seven and a half percent because obviously your base pot has got much heavier. So we're still collecting more recycling than we used to collect, but obviously our residual has gone up significantly and that's a a bigger set of weights and we've done a few waste compositions in the time and 
there's nothing specific that shows why it's gone up. It has roughly the same composition as it used to, but it's just, I suppose, that's what brings office and kind of work waste. That's why they classify it as household-like waste, isn't it? Because it is household-like waste. So when you put that back in the household, it looks just the same. So you've just got a little bit more of everything. So the behaviours have kept going. People are still recycling, but there's just a bit more of everything. And the food waste, the AD plant hasn't really seen a change in the amount of food it's receiving, even though a large commercial entity of that has disappeared. But good old local authorities have taken up the burden and now collecting it because it's all at home. So it's all shifted around. But as a result, I think most authorities have seen their recycling rates drop. It's just proportional, I think, how much you have seen. And it might depend on whether it's a city or a local, more rural kind of area. But I think most authorities have seen their recycling rates drop during this time. Yeah, that's, I think, what we have heard as well. And as you said, the shift from commercial to household, it's probably, I don't know, maybe in a couple of years, we can go back and analyse this period to see if people consume differently at home than at work. For example, is there less packaging because you got the opportunity to make your own sandwich instead of having to buy some and things like that. But I think that's probably a bit too early to look at that. I think I love your communication work and that Bristol Waste has an innovation team and a community out- outreach team to support all of your campaigns. And that's quite progressive because not many authorities and contractors have been able to, to have that level of resourcing and support. Are you able to talk a bit more about the main drivers for having a team like that? And are they economic or is that more as a result of being, kind of like I said, a tackle or part of an authority? I think it's very much much as part of a tackle and it was kind of an integral part of the creation of Bristol Waste basically that there were three main aims to reduce residual increase recycling and change behaviour and there always has been the community engagement team are just a critical part to what we do it is that direct one-to-one relationship and they're a massive asset to us as a business and the business and the local authority can see that and can appreciate that so with that piece they're just vital basically and we are lucky to have them but I think with the innovation team and with them and with such a creative communications and marketing team that all does really work together and you need all of those to work together because to deliver the campaigns we did like waste nothing kind of thing you do need all of those integral parts you know we have monthly webinars with the community engagement team answering questions for our residents and that kind of thing and they go through different themes or just general FAQs every so often and you know it is part of a communication and a relationship that we build with our residents and that's really the buy-in that we're getting as well so we are I mean we're incredibly lucky to have that because most authorities don't. And I'm interested in that sort of resident perception, I suppose. So I work quite often with producers and they ask me, what should they be doing with their packaging, for example, to make it recyclable? Because they're all committed to either internal pledges or to pledges like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation or Plastic Pact and so on. And they're really keen to understand what happens downstream. So once their consumer has consumed the product or the item, what happens to that packaging? How do they ensure that it fits with those types of downstream collection infrastructure and and sorting processes that you've been describing? So I guess, you know, as a collector, if you had the opportunity to talk directly to them, what would you say to them to help make those two things marry? I think if we got to talk to them, that would be success in itself. So I think that's the biggest part, basically. Talk to us as local authorities, as collection authorities, 
as a group of organisations talk to us because so often in conferences you go to these sustainability conferences and all of the manufacturers are there saying what wonderful things they're doing and so often the audience I feel like a really awkward cog in the audience because so often the audience are going oh well it's all the local authorities and you're like well no because we didn't make any of these things we didn't make anybody buy them either we're just the last piece in the jigsaw that then has to pick up the pieces and deal with them and that sounds quite negative but it is such a critical collection infrastructure and technology to reprocess this materials all take a long time to change you know you buy your vehicles on a eight to ten year rotation so all of a sudden one year in and a few new materials appear it's really difficult to be able to collect them and to get them to that one processing plant that is available makes collecting those quite a costly exercise and also certainly for us as local authorities I have organizations coming to us and going can you collect these things can you collect these and I'm like potentially yes but at the moment when we're not getting full capture of our already targeted materials such as food plastic cans paper card and all of those kind of things batteries and we until we can ensure that we get maximum participation and capture of the materials that we already know that we can collect we don't really have the ability to focus on the smaller materials these new products and I suppose that's where we're at, basically. And then, and, you know, compostable coffee cups are a brilliant example. And again, it's a bit of a love-hate relationship in the industry. You know, sort of, we were really lucky. We got cut funding from Hubbub to be able to collect the old school plastic paper cups that coffee used to come in. And it was really good. But how do you explain that only a paper plastic cup can go in there and not a compostable cup? Because although sort of the greenwashing of a compostable cup is brilliant and it seems the right thing that it can be composted but the infrastructure in the UK for food and compostable items has moved to AD so that means we don't have anywhere to send it even if we could collect it we don't have anywhere to take it but the positive on that is that organizations in Bristol and supply in little independent suppliers who are able to change who have changed to a compostable cup are now changing back to paper and plastic because they're now reassured that we have a recycling stream for the paper plastic cups and they go up to James Cropper and they get turned into beautiful products but that's kind of the situation we're in so these lovely newfangled products come out paper bottles and all that kind of thing but what on earth do we do with them vehicles only have a number of stillages to put these materials in and we can't collect every single material so if residents can't do something easy with them then you end up in a worse situation because then they go into residual waste whereas had they stuck to a paper and plastic cup or a plastic bottle it can go into the appropriate recycling stream. Gwen it's a good job you've got people like us to act as intermediaries Uh, people like Claudia and me who understand both sides of that equation I guess Um, but I'm interested also to know because I mentioned earlier that we've got residents around here who are really proactively using the sort of take back services for flexible packaging that the retailers have brought in with wrap and and plastic packed and so on quite recently it's been really quite significantly expanded and I'm kind of surprised because I live in an urban area where not everybody has a car but they're quite happy to take that back on their way back to do their shopping do you get feedback from your resident would they be willing to or are they willing to participate in those sorts of schemes and send back schemes for their coffee pods and, and those sorts of things or do they expect it all to be taken conveniently from their curbside 
People would like it from their curbside, but I think for those conversations that we do have, if you are able to offer a solution, then I think that we have to accept that that is also a solution. And I think we've said for years, because whether it's publicly facing or not, some supermarkets have been taking plastic film for ages. So when I sort of openly told people, oh, yes, just take it back. You know, our customer services point in one of the local supermarkets does take it when you turn up there with a big bag of bags. And then they're like, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, we'll take it away. And that's where it's about scale isn't it and the logistics of it all as a supermarket they naturally already have a lot of film so actually for us to take it back to the supermarket works really well and I think that flexible approach of where we can take materials I think needs to be embraced basically so that as long as there is a solution then that is good enough that is a really good solution and we can ensure that they get to the right reprocessors. That is so important. That's so kind of, I love you saying that because that's what I've been trying to drum into everybody that you need to have the infrastructure behind it, collection on its own. It's not good enough and it needs to be linked in. It needs to be connected. It can't be disconnected because otherwise we are getting real issues. And I think we get that at a bigger scale as well in terms of exporting waste. The more we have a domestic infrastructure that is aligned and that's working through, the less we have to rely on exports where we then maybe lose a bit of control where it exactly goes and how it's being treated and what products are being recycled, for example, out of it. So that is really brilliant. I don't know if we've got a bit of time to talk about changes to EPR and also how that might impact materials that you have to deal with at the end of life in terms of drinks, cartons, paper bottles, and these kind of like more weirder or newer kind of like packaging solutions. I, I think that would be really, really good to have a view on that. Yes. I mean, I think we've therefore touched on producer responsibility then. I suppose where sort of producer responsibilities, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a producer responsibility via a local authority. Producer responsibility is a responsibility for the material that you generate. And therefore, why does that not mean that, well, actually receive it back why does it have to come via a third party of a local authority can it not go via a collection point you still have responsibility for it how do you use that responsibility and socially and responsibly how do you use that producer responsibility by just receiving it back that's all you need to do you need to get them back and you need to make sure that they're reprocessed and I suppose the difficulty is when you've got millions of those small quantities of materials and if local authorities need to collect them it makes it very complicated. I think that's a really good point because that also is a bit like the good work and the success the local authorities have had in getting the engagement and the effort that have been put in to take the materials back because we also know that even if producers offer take back schemes the take up and the uh, amount of material that's actually returned is very little and I think that's my view also the big gap that we need to breach that we need to teach people who would like to set up a take back scheme really how local authorities and others do it and how they constantly encourage as you said nudge remind people this is the best option this is the most efficient system this is what you need to make it better and reduce your waste streams. I think, especially in the UK, it's also difficult because you don't have pay as you throw. I think there's more effort in other countries where you have to pay for a certain size of bin and where you are a bit more restricted, where basically your bin size is being reduced to encourage you to utilize or basically force you to a certain degree to use other methods because you need to reduce your waste either totally or use those other pathways. Yes, but I would question that, I think, because is that because 
our residents and our users and consumers don't expect the producers to take it back because they've been very, you know, industry has never been forthcoming in saying we will take these materials back. Residents have always expected local authorities to collect all of these materials. If it was front and centre in trying to not to be generic and name any items, but if it was front and centre on the packaging of whenever you bought a material that was difficult to reprocess that manufacturers expecting that product back then that would change engagement I think because at the moment as consumers we're very much more driven to think well I'll just buy this from the supermarket and I'll give it to my local authority and they'll fix the problem yeah, kind of pay my taxes so I'm expecting yes. the service kind of attitude. so the fairies will duly come and take all of these materials that I chose to buy take them away and do good things with them and I think there is a certain extent to DRS and stuff. They're materials we already all collect, so that's fine. That infrastructure works. But for all the weird and wonderful, for the foil pouches and the little things that you put in machines to make beverages and that kind of thing, for all of those things that are just really hard to deal with and the quantities are so small, do you bring in as a local authority the infrastructure to collect all of those things from a minority of your residents that choose to use them? Or do you work a cost-efficient system because ultimately it's paid for by the consumer to collect the majority of items well or do you do loads of things really difficultly and I think with the new consultations and with the results that come out from that that will guide what has to happen in the future a lot but it will be interesting to see in which way they take those consultations and responses. That to me sounds like the perfect opportunity for us to find a guest at the appropriate time from policy and also probably from producers or from a trade body that represents the producers. So thanks for that prompt, Gwen, and hopefully we can be able to find somebody at the appropriate time to share that with us as, as those consultations sort of go to the next stage. We've had some really interesting views from you today, and I'd just like to say that your passion comes across really strongly and not at all weirdly. I <laughs> would really counteract your comment at the beginning that you're weirdly passionate about waste. I think it's super exciting. So thank you very much for sharing all of your comments and questions with us. One last question for you from me. What advice would you give yourself if you were just starting your career now and you knew what you know now in your from your role today and the roles that came before it? What would you tell listeners or yourself at the start of the career? I don't know. I think I might say go with a rubbish job, basically. I had to put a pun in there somewhere. So yeah, stick with it, basically. It is a fantastically rewarding career because you do really get to change things and you're actively doing some things for the good. And I think especially if you're a woman, stick with it. There are still some hurdles to get over, but we are getting there. We're getting better. The industry is a bit more amenable to it these days, so it is working better. But yeah, just stick with it, really. It's brilliant fun, basically. You do become the more interesting and more popular person at parties as the years go by, basically. I'll go back to the original. You were weird at the beginning, but you're now interested and people have lots of questions for you. So yes, in a weird way, it does make you more popular. But thanks for having me and thank you for letting me share my rambles with you. Thank you very much, Gwen. I love that last outtake. So thank you very much for spending your time with us and for sharing your thoughts. So we have reached the end of our discussion today. We hope you have found it interesting. As always, if you have any comments or questions about anything you've heard in this session or anything you would like us to cover in the future, please get in touch via the Anthesis Group website or email us or reach out via LinkedIn. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>